This is a special edition of Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the premier financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Now, for this special edition of Macro Voices, here's hedge fund manager Eric Townsend. Macro Voices Inside the Investment Committee, episode number two, was recorded on July 8th, 2019. I'm Eric Townsend. Inside the Investment Committee takes you inside the process professionals use to vet macro trading strategies. Have you ever imagined what the conversation between a well-respected hedge fund manager and his trusted advisors and consultants sounds like as they discuss market conditions and consider macro-themed trading strategies? Well, that's exactly what we intend to bring you with this new podcast format. Our expert panel includes Active Hedge Fund Manager Alex Gurevich from Hante Investments in San Francisco, along with boutique institutional advisors Julian Brigden, founder of Macro Intelligence 2, and Juliet DeClerc, founder of JDI Research. Our inaugural episode was a big hit last month, and we took your feedback and suggestions to heart. For episode number two, Hante Investments' Alex Gurevich is in the hot seat. Alex is going to pitch a trade that was featured in his book explaining why back in 2014, the perfect trade was to be long bonds and short the euro currency at the same time. Alex prepared a .pdf download with charts and excerpts from his book in support of his presentation to the panel today. You'll find the download link on our homepage at macrovoices.com. So let's start by meeting our expert panel. MI2 founder Julian Brigden was in the hot seat for our first episode, and he's back this month to evaluate and react to Alex's pitch. Julian, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back on the show, Eric. It's great to have you, Julian. Our next panelist is JDI Research founder Juliet DeClerc. Juliet, thanks for joining us again. Hi, guys. Nice to hear you again. Thanks, Juliet. And finally, Hante Investments Fund Manager Alex Gurevich is in the hot seat this month. Alex, the floor is yours. Please pitch your idea for being long bonds and short the euro back in 2014 to the panel. And by all means, please refer to the download that we already told our listeners where to find on our homepage at macrovoices.com. We'll start with the 2014 trade and discuss why it made sense then. And then later in the program, we can revisit how these markets look today. Okay. Hello, Eric. Uh, thank you for having me over. So my uh, goal today is transport us five years back. It was an interesting period of my time because that's when I was writing my book, uh, The Next Perfect Trade. And as I was writing this book, I was observing the markets of 2014, which to me is possibly the most exciting year of my career. And I was formulating, trying to articulate clearly the, my strategic principles. The book came out in 2015, so I was able to update in the book, the charts and draw some conclusions as of the beginning of 2015. And now, of course, we have another five years of data to evaluate the principles that were discussed there. So let's go to the beginning of 2014. We just had a great year in stock markets in 2013. The growth outlooks has improved. It looks like job markets in US will go stronger. The Fed commands tapering, or at least the promised tapering in 2013, and after a brief taper tantrum, the bond market stabilized. We're in a place when the Federal Reserve and many market participants looking uh, for the interest rates to start rising in the United States. A lot of people got involved in short bond market trade. At the same time, 
dollars actually has been quite weak. Aside from being really strong against yen, which was the consequence of Abenomics, dollar weakened considerably against euro, and euro is close to 140 right now, right now in 2014, which is uh, one of the highest level it's been. It has been higher in 2007, but it has rallied quite a bit from its post-crisis low. The question is, if you have a reasonably positive growth outlook, how should you position in the macro markets, aside from just simply being long equities, which is definitely could be one side of your portfolio, but is there a way to position for positive growth outlook, which is not really so dependent on equity beta? We can consider two possible trades. One of them to be short the front end of the US interest rate curve, that is to bet on multiple hikes arriving, and another to be short euro versus dollar, betting on a strong growth in the United States. And this is where I, when I was writing the book, I started to introduce the notions of um, causality and concurrent necessity. Those are pretty com complex concepts, but the basic idea is to try to understand which of the trades works in a broader range of economic outcomes. And I would like to go here for your reference to page three. And let's consider not just two, but three trades. One of them short, short end interest rates, that's trade A. Long US dollar, that's trade B, and short 10-year notes, which is trade C. Let's uh, consider those interactions of those trades. Currently, the, inter the short-end interest rates are 0%, while the 10-year notes yield close to 3%. This is the situation in 2014. Is it really possible? Is it really possible that we will lose money on being long 10-year notes if Fed does not raise rates? Or conversely? Is it actually possible to make money on being short 10-year notes if there is no hiking? I would contend that it's not possible. That is, earning 3% carry, if Fed stays on hold, sooner or later you're going to make money. So Fed interest rate hikes are strictly necessary for the short 10-year note trade succeed. However, is it possible that Fed hikes and 10-year notes don't actually go down? Yes, quite possible. Actually, looking at the history of previous hikes like 2005 cycle, when originally Fed starts to raise rates, bond yields actually don't go up. So interestingly, we get shorting front-end interest rates to be strictly superior to shorting 10-year notes, which makes 10-year notes an inferior trade. Why? Because 10-year notes can work only, shorting 10-year notes can only work if short-end interest rates go up. But short-end interest rates go up can uh, go up without actually 10-year notes going up in yield. Is it too confusing, a logic here? Or can people follow me? No, I think it's very interesting. Okay. So so we established that if we wanted to bet on better growth, short, being betting on rising short-term interest rates is better than rising 10-year note yields. Now let's compare it with the long dollar versus euro trade. Now we have a situation when euro, euro is going uh, to 140, and Europe is actually not doing as well as U.S. It's just kind of still struggling after European debt crisis. We have Mario Draghi, who said whatever it takes, while U.S. is tapering the quantitative easing and stopping to debase the dollar. European Central Bank is actually ready to debase the euro. Now, put yourself in a situation. Is it possible for euro to stay here if Fed actually starts actively raising rates? There is no certainties in financial markets, but there are definitely certain likelihoods. So there is a certain likelihood that if they 
start raising rates, there is no way euro will survive at this level. However, is it possible for dollar to rally even if Fed does not raise rates? I contend it is quite possible because the ball is really in the CB's court. If Fed does not raise rates but stops its quantitative easing program, dollar's kind of on a neutral, right? We're not increasing or decreasing liquidity. If ECB starts increasing liquidity, it's quite possible for dollar to go stronger. Jumping a little ahead, as we look on the page two, we can see that euro in the through 2014 actually have done have debased quite a bit from almost 140 to only slightly above 120 at the end of 2014. And this has all happened while Fed actually didn't raise rates aggressively. If anything, the projected interest rates have fallen. Why, why did it work so well? Well, it worked because long dollar was a strictly superior trade to being short, short end interest rates. So betting on dollar getting stronger versus euro was a better trade than on betting on rising short-term interest rates. So now we have a chain of implications on page three. Short tenure notes, to succeed that, you need to first succeed at A, which is to get short-end interest rates to go up. And that in turn implies success of longer dollar trade. So long dollar trade is strictly superior to all of them. So other trades do not have any space in your portfolio. There should be no portfolio with trade like short tenure notes. It is logically impossible. It is not a matter of speculation or market view. I am kind of get, I don't make those contentions very strong. I only made them twice. And it's the second time I'm making contention in this career that short long-ended treasury bonds is a strictly inferior tra trade, which is a logical fallacy rather than an arguable market view. And this is what I really want to focus on this presentation on this specific trade. Being short U.S. Treasury bonds in 2014 is a logical fallacy because it is strictly inferior to other ways to express the same view. So now we have established that long dollar versus euro is strictly superior and short tenure notes is strictly inferior. In fact, throughout my book, I argue that this is possibly being short tenure notes in 2014 is possibly the worst trade in all history of all financial markets. It fails on every possible criteria. Now, if that is the case, then the opposite of this trade should be a really good trade. So imagine, so far, I look from perspective of betting on positive growth. But suppose we're growth agnostic. Suppose we have our equity portfolio, which is whatever our location want to be, and we want to build a macro portfolio, which is agnostic to what, uh, how the jobs will turn out, how the global growth will look like. And this is where the perfect trade comes in. A perfect trade is a trade which does not actually depend on any specific economic forecast. So the opposite of the worst possible trade to be short U.S. Treasury bonds is to be long U.S. Treasury bonds. Now let's go to page five. Imagine that we consider a portfolio of two trades, one of them long bond futures, trade A, and it is aligned with a multi-decade secular trend. It has a huge positive carry right now. It is aligned with terminal value, which means that if you buy, say, 10-year notes at 3% yield and hold them to maturity and fund them at whatever Fed funds are, it's very unlikely that we're going to lose money because even if Fed will raise somewhat over this 10-year period, they will raise rates, they will cut rates, they will do all sorts of things. But starting from zero, it's highly unlikely that the average will be above 3%. As a matter of fact, over the last 30 years, if we bought 10-year notes at any point and funded them till maturity, we will have never lost money. On average, we would have made about 23 to 
And if I leveraged the trade to 10 times, it would have been 24% return per annum. The, the other great thing about this trade long bond futures is that even if characteristic, what does it mean? It means that if nothing happens, if Fed is on hold, growth is not great, we will keep making money. However, even if the growth picks up and Fed decides to hike, we will not likely to lose money because the yield curve will flatten and the further out we go, 10-year notes, we can go to 30-year notes, we will probably be isolated from the problems on the front end. And the flip side of that is the short euro, which has positive carry, also aligned with valuation because historically euro is, the average is closer to 120. It is aligned with US positive growth outlook, which is what we started with. And also it is an even if trade, which means that even if US growth is not that great, even if US does not raise rates that high, it'll still probably very likely to make money given the historical pattern and given what the current central bank policies are even without changing rates, but with regards to the balance sheet. So these two trades, the combinations could be called the perfect trade. The way I formulate it is that, this is on page four, a perfect trade is a combination of two superior trades of which neither may fail without the other one succeeding. So let's review that. We're long euro and we're long bonds. We just established that long bonds cannot fail unless rates go up very rapidly in the front end. And not even necessarily that. But if rates go up very rapidly in the front end, dollar-euro will definitely succeed. Correspondingly, dollar-euro cannot fail unless the rates in the U.S. will not go up for a very protracted period of time, which will signify a very significant rally in the long bonds. In order for one of these things, not just even not to make money, but even to be flat, the other trade has to make a lot of money which put us in a situation, and I very rarely say those things, and I welcome you trying to poke hole in this, when it is practically impossible to lose money on a combination of those two trades. At least one of them should make a lot of money, and most likely both of them will make money in the long run. And jumping several months forward and looking at the charts, this is exactly what happened in 2014. And if you go to page six, you can see how those two things, the dollar index and the Bonds, even though they were not trading in perfect correlation to each other, but they kept rallying together. So from here, I probably will pass it on to the questions. Wow, Alex, that was a fantastic introduction. And I, I really want to add a comment here because we did get several questions in reaction to our first episode saying, hey, why are you guys doing old trades as opposed to doing something that's current in the current market. There's two reasons for that. One is if we do just a current trade, we can't tell you how it worked out and whether we were right or wrong because we don't know yet. But more importantly, what we're trying to accomplish with this new show format is we're trying to show you the process that professionals go through and some of the important things that they encounter. And Alex is saying something that's really profound here. He's saying no matter what your view is, he feels that there's no sane reason to have been outright short the 10-year treasury in 2014, because no matter what reason you might have had for thinking that was a good idea, there was a better way to put that trade on. And he's also saying that the trade that he did put on, which was a multi-legged trade, he really thinks was literally the perfect trade that almost no matter what happened, it was impossible to lose money because if one side of the trade wasn't making money, the other side was. Those are some really, really bold claims. Julian Brigden, I, I think in a lot of ways, I, I remember that you were making money on the, some of the same trades Alex was in 2014. So I, I know you don't disagree, but what do you think about Alex's claim that there's just doesn't matter what your view was, there was no good reason 
to be short the 10-year in 2014, and that the trade he did put on couldn't lose. I mean, look, as I said, my head was pretty much in the in the same place. We played it slightly differently. We were short euros, and we had some curve flatteners on the euro-dollar curve. But the point I think you've got to be aware of is that there could have been some reasons to be short 10-year treasuries. At the end of 2013, a lot of our work was suggesting that we were actually seeing quite a rapid pickup in US growth. A lot of our employment models, and you made this point earlier, Alex, that unemployment was falling very rapidly in the United States in sort of 2013 into 2014. I mean, across the whole year, if I remember, we basically fell from 6% to under 5%, um, I think into the mid fours by the end of the year. And there was a case to be made that the Fed was behind the curve. Okay, there was definitely a case to be made that the Fed was behind the curve. Now, we'd also seen that Janet Yellen was talking a little bit more hawkishly. She indeed had come out very clearly in that camp starting at the end of uh, 2013, if I remember. And she talked about the possibility of rate hikes, but she was also couching it very much within the context of the presentation that she'd done in in 2012, I think. I think it was on D-Day, 6th of June 2012, where she talked about optimal control. So optimal control, as we all know, was this sort of theory of, you know, we can let the economy run hot. And the way that we do that is we hold rates down, even though nominal GDP growth is picking up in the hope that we would close the gap. So in a way, the analogy I like to use for people is it's like launching an aircraft off an aircraft carrier. You jam the plane back on the deck as far as you can. You let it build up as much speed. You hold it in place. You hold it in place. You hold it in place. And at some point, then you let it go and it rips off into the into the air and up you go. So the idea is you hold rates down, you hold the rates down longer, longer, longer than you normally would. You build up all that momentum and then eventually you have to normalize rates very rapidly. So I think there was a case to be made that maybe 10 years was a little bit vulnerable. Look, I ultimately agreed with you that that wasn't the best trade. As I said, I we put on euro dollar spreads where we were playing basically, if I remember correctly, I think it was ED6 against ED19. We put it on a, at the very end of 2013 at around 250 basis points and wrote it down. But I think it was to say that it was perfect, you know, not being short 10 years, I think was a little dangerous. The reason why I actually didn't short 10 years was I was very concerned um, and it actually turned out to be partly true. I mean, it wasn't as dangerous as I thought it was that when the Fed stepped back from QE, there was a significant risk of the equity market wobbling. And we did in September and October, we did get a reasonable wobble in equities and um, 10 years did actually fall in, in that, as you would expect. So that was the reason why I didn't go into it. But I was, my concern was, you're running an economy hot. Yes, you're going to raise rates, but you're not going to raise them very much because you're in this optimal control environment. Is there a risk that the long end of the bond market actually becomes unhinged? So I wasn't so certain that it was a layup of a trade. I was actually worried about 
you know, do I want to be, it wasn't such a clear trade to me to be super long 10-year yields. Julia to Clerk, let's talk about the process question here. Is there such a, a thing as a perfect trade? And if so, was this really one? As I was, I was saying, um, in 2014, I was actually on, on maternity leave and I don't have such a strong recall as um, you guys have. But what I think is um, really interesting to bounce on and what I find fascinating in, in Alex's book is the focus on trying to make money whilst getting as little right as possible. And what I mean by as little right as possible is, I mean, sometimes you you can be like being successful without the right macro backdrop. Uh, you can be successful without getting the, the right timing. So that's why for the perfect trade, we need to move away from needing the perfect timing or at a minimum, I would always recommend a portfolio of trades that aim to become the, the perfect portfolio rather than a few independent trades all aiming at achieving success on their own. For me, the first must-have is, is really a robust macro framework. But, but of course, this is not sufficient. The recipe for success is to only consider what I would call uh, the first derivative trade. And I believe this concept has similarities with, with what Alex calls the superior trade and that it's really important. And what I mean by a first derivative trade is the one that is the most closely linked to the macro backdrop and which will most likely defy momentum and therefore lose very little before the trade comes quote unquote in play, but make your year when it finally unfolds. The beauty of this trade is that it's not timing dependent and it could easily be replaced by a portfolio of trades. To illustrate this concept, and, and maybe um, Alex can answer whether I'm, I'm getting this right, I would like to, for example, talk 2018 um, and take it as an example. So my view then was that uh, our star, so the real equilibrium rate, was only temporarily going higher, e.g. due to Trump's fiscal reform, and that it would lead to the Fed over-hiking and ultimately a collapse in inflation break-event. The problem, rates emboldened by what we now call Trump's boom, were trending higher with strong momentum, and timing for a turn was really anyone's guess. Yet, you know, I have to be faithful to my, my investment process and conviction and try to avoid, firstly, missing the 2018 big trade because of being too focused on short-term momentum. And secondly, falling into the traps that market inevitably puts everywhere along the way to your perfect year. So I had to really find the first derivative trade of my macro framework and be patient. Arguably, I think that's the main pitfall in which macro funds are falling one after the other. They're basically too focused on delivering monthly returns and therefore end up picking inferior trades and hope to get the perfect timing. Inevitably, they end up losing money on timing, which is much worse. They actually end up missing the perfect trade. To get back to the 2018 example, I ended up recommending short 10-year inflation and a once-fives flattener with a strong conviction that it didn't matter where, where Fed funds were going in the short term in an absolute level. But, but what did matter is that it was very likely that the Fed would be blinded by short-term tailwinds and hover hike in an environment where trend growth and, and therefore long-term equilibrium rate was in fact falling. So the 2018 perfect trade was, was evident for me, and it even eventually paid awesomely. 
The interesting thing, though, is that even if 2018 ended up one of our best year for, for strategy, I actually lost a couple of clients in May for recommending trades that were, for them, quite frankly, boring. But every year's success depends on having the trade that will make your year if your macro analysis is right and lose very little during the time it's not in play. So as it happened, five-year treasuries went up 80 base points from Jan 2018 before going back down from October and ending nearly flat on the year. So unless you got the perfect timing, you would have made really little. And 10-year break-evens did nothing until September before actually collapsing 50 base points into year-end, whilst once five trended down basically from March 2018 to end the year at minus 15 base point negative, where we basically still are. So I know what the superior trades were, and, and it's all about getting the right conviction level and patience. And even if with, with the, the best timing, I would have never achieved this result by trading five-year U.S. treasuries. So I think what really uh, what's interesting in, in Alex's book is that he's really focusing on, on not having to be the perfect trader. And, and that's particularly important if you're actually working for clients and, and have to deliver consistency to your client base uh, rather than constant flip-flop. I think that's that very concept also applies to 2019, and there's a, a lot of macro hedge funds that fell in a similar pitfall. Thanks to a robust macro framework, I knew that global level of activity would collapse into mid-year. What I also knew, and we all knew, is that the Fed would no longer be able to ignore growing macro headwinds as they reach the U.S. shore. This was something that we basically got confirmed on on 4th of uh, of January by Powell himself. So the question really was for 2019, what is the superior trade? Again, you have to go at the roots of the macro backdrop and define its first derivative. In this case, financial repression is the overwhelming answer, and it means that past codalities should be completely ignored. I think basically with negative rates, any positive cash flows can be revalued to the moon. So collapsing global PMIs would mean negative rates in most of Europe. And that basically global duration was the straight answer to to my question about the the 2019 superior trade. And I think what um, it allowed you in 2019 was to really avoid focusing on equities, for example, and really just focus on, on duration. Alex Gurevich, give us your reactions to what you've just heard from Julian and Juliet. Well, first of all, first I'll, ju- I'll just uh, react to what Juliet said. It's very interesting that she had such a great year in 2018 and she identified her own combination that in her own mind could be close to a perfect trade. Well, for example, for me, 2018 was an extremely difficult and choppy year, which took me a lot of energy and suffering to make it my way through. I did make my way through and we're fine, but it was a tough year. While 2014, for example, was an extremely easy year for me, while many other managers struggled. This just reflects how differently our minds work and how many opportunities are in the market and how many opportunities to identify interesting trade combinations, but also how prolific they can be when you do find something great. And what is interesting about what Julian said, Julian pointed out that there were many reasons to be short 10-year notes in 2014. And that's kind of what I started with. 
from macro perspective, if you just look at it as an individual trade, yeah, there could be reasons to be long and reasons to be short. But my whole contention is that in a way, everything that is said was said to be short U.S. Treasury bonds in 2014 was irrelevant. It was entirely irrelevant with what was trumped by irrefutable mathematical logic. To really follow this logic and with more precision, you probably would have to read my book. So the pages that I put here in presentations are mostly extracts from my book, with a couple of charts being extended, and we'll get to one of them in a moment. But when I go through all of those things that were said, all of those reasons why Treasury bonds could have gone down, all those things about growth were irrelevant once you went through the irrefutable logic that proved beyond reasonable doubt with the way you convict a defendant at the court or prove a mathematical theorem that it was a bad trade to be short and you know that it was a good trade to be longer. The logic is irrefutable. If rate stays at zero forever, then by being long tenure note and continuously refunding it at zero, you will eventually make money. You could, of course, be slightly off on timing, uh, though historical pattern wouldn't have indicated that either. But uh, eventually you're bound to make money. And if rates go up, you're making money the other way. This type of logic, it appears often in one form or another in various trades. And for example, Juliet gave us an, another example of such logic. But it's seldom so impenetrable. In fact, if you look at uh, page two, what we did on the bottom of page two is extended the chart. It actually doesn't show 10-year notes. It showed six euro dollar contract, which is a contract for cessating of uh, London Interbank, inter three-month London Interbank interest rate. And six means it will be a year and a half out. So it's not exactly, it doesn't exactly behave as a 10-year note versus euro. The reason why we use that particular thing, because that's what I... Long ago, in 2002, that's when I started to use a benchmark for my risk parity strategy. So that's the kind of what I was basing a lot of charts on historically. So if you see on that chart on the bottom, it extends all the way to 2019. The orange line is the euro, and it fell to 2014 and stayed way down all the way to middle 2016. And the blue line, which is the roll, rolling euro dollar contract, just you kept making money on both sides of this pretty much in straight line up to the middle of 2016. From there on, the strategy became much choppier. And if you stayed on the same thing, it would be a much more contentious struggle. Looking at today, we could still make the same arguments. We can say, like, well, if uh, Fed cuts rate, we make money on the interest rate side. If Fed does not cut rate or doesn't cut, rate, cut rates as much as the market predicts, dollar will go stronger. This is still valid, but the, each junction logic that I posted before in 2014 was less strong and less convincing in the next three years because valuations were different and there was more possibilities to uh, more possibilities could have occurred. For example, what could have occurred is in the beginning of 2018 a simultaneous massive sell-off in both on the dollar and U.S. Treasury bonds, which is characteristic of the end of a tightening cycle. It actually happens in many tightening cycles. So if you knew it in advance, you maybe could have predicted it. You don't know when this, uh, sorry, not even so much tightening cycle as the end of economic cycle. You couldn't have predicted when the end of economic cycle is going to happen. So it was hard to know that it was going to happen. But in hindsight, 2018 was not as strange as it was for me, at least when I started to go into it. So what I said in the beginning of 2019, I actually told my investors, in winter, I think as early as January 2019. This year, I don't have a perfect trade for you. I do not have a portfolio 
which will make money regardless of what happens in the market like I did in 2014. I was very specific and vocal about this. I said, I'm going to take a view, and my view is that Fed is going to start cutting rates this year. This was my view all along, uh, starting from basically a couple of years ago. I started formulating the view that rate cuts will start in the middle of 2019, and I was steadfast on that. So I said, I'm going to take this view, I'm going to make an options bet on this view, and I'm going to make money if I'm right and lose money if I'm wrong. This is a very different situation from having a perfect trade. It has been working out so far over the last six months, and we don't know how it's going to work out in the long run. But what I'm, again, emphasizing is, as Juliet pointed out, betting on falling interest rate is a superior trade curve. It is a good trade. It is a trade which has good risk-reward, at least from my perspective. But it is not a situation that we were in 2014, which accorded us a perfect trade. Those happened only twice in my career, and I am eager to look for them. But it is important to know that while I may not find opportunities in my space, someone else, like, for example, Juliet in 2018, can find their opportunities in their space. You know, what's striking to me in this conversation is I noticed that Julian and Alex were very, very like-minded in 2014. Julian describing a trade very, very similar, very similar market views to how both Julian and Alex read the bond market at that time. So it would seem that the evidence suggests, okay, these are like-minded guys who think about the bond market the same way. But if I'm not mistaken, if we fast forward to today... Alex, last I knew, was buying bonds until the cows come home. Julian was waiting for a turnaround and a move to substantially higher yields. So it seems like you guys used to see, at least in 2014, you saw the bond market very much the same way. I think you see it very differently today. First of all, is that correct? And if so, why is it that, you know, what's the difference? How come you see things differently where you used to see them the same? Julian, am I on the right track? You're certainly, as we stand here today, uh, yeah, I'm not a buyer of fixed income at these levels. In fact, I think, you know, we've been long since October and we just recommended to people to take profit uh, and get out of longs in fixed income. I think there's just a number of things that suggest to me that the market is very overextended at this point. I'm actually quite concerned about the Fed disappointing don't think that's their intention, but I think they may end up essentially getting there. And we have a significant disconnect between the Fed and the markets. And that's always the basis for a sort of, you know, a, a meltdown, whether it's the taper tantrum, whether it's the boom blow off in 2015, or whether uh, it's to some extent the meltdown that we saw in the bond market in 2016. So I'm, I'm, I'm worried about that here. I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know whether it's you know, the beginning of another massive leg in a bond bear market, you know, that takes yields back up, you know, above the previous highs of whatever we were, three and a quarter or something. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's that yet, but I don't want to be betting uh, at this point on lower bond yields. I, I think those uh, we've come too far, too fast, and we'll tactically wait to see, you know, what happens over the next few months. Alex, why is it that you guys saw the market so similarly in 2014, and I think you see it very differently today? Well, first of all, I uh, don't put a lot of weight on tactical trading. I don't actually look at things as flows over extensions and short-term technical levels very much. I do to a certain extent, and it would be incorrect to say that I wouldn't tactically change my 
position sizing because of how far we've gone and what's going on in the market. Yet, generally, my underlying view remains the same. I actually think that Juliet, uh, probably as well as anyone else, has expressed her views on inflation in uh, one of the recent Microvoice podcasts. So I would just say, as she said, when it refers to macroeconomic view and kind of inflationary view, but also in terms of my own strategy, I have an underlying reason why I almost always want to be long U.S. Treasury bonds. First of all, they're in a secular uptrend. All those little swings that we have between 2016 and 2018, I really, if you look at the 40-year chart, just that, little swings within the channel. If you look at a roll-adjusted chart of classical bond futures, it's a relentless juggernaut which keeps going up and I have no reason to fight it. Secondly, even though the relationship is not as perfect as it was in 2014, the same logic still is in place. You see now that ECB is uh, pausing to cut rates even further and possibly increase QE even further. Who knows what? Strange though it seems, but they're still cranking at it. And um, what's going to happen if Fed disappoints? Yeah, it could cause short-term market volatility, but most likely what will cause it will cause significant tightening of monetary conditions in the U.S. and much stronger dollar. And actually, if you do put a gun to my head, in terms of making a short horizon prediction, I do believe that dollar will get much stronger in the second half of 2019, though that is a call, as I said, a tactical call that I don't, don't put a lot of weight on, but just at least some weight. So dollar will go stronger, and eventually it will just cause U.S. interest rates to rally, that is go to lower rates all over again. So it will be just a chopping noise. So basically the only way to uh, get rid of this tremendous tension between which is created by interest rate differential between developed market countries is to keep cutting U.S. interest rates, because if they don't, I'll just keep money on being short every other developed market currency. So to me, that still remains being long bonds is still a superior trade, because it's superior to being short dollar, and long dollar is a superior trade because it is superior to being short bonds. And the only thing that has really changed is which makes me more comfortable with the situation as opposed to 2014, that actually right now long gold fits very nicely in this portfolio and plugs a lot of holes in it. In the event of, for example, if we have very easy Fed, weaker dollar, but a sell-off on the long end of U.S. interest rate curve, that is a pretty good setup for gold. And gold is another trade which eventually will make money no matter how much gold chops. Now, eventually, it's going to go to three or 4,000 over several years. So, And when I say will, I obviously don't say that it's a certainty. It's just my opinion that all doses are skewed that way. So, so I believe that it's not about... I think the difference between me and Julian is that Julian as a, tends to look at an individual trade and analyze all factors that might go into making it work or not work. That's why, for example, in his strategic framework, being short 10-year notes, even though being smart, that was not a trade he chose to, but being short 10-year notes was a possible trade in 2014. In my logical framework, it is impossible trade in 2014 and still impossible trade now. Juliet, your reactions to what Alex said? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm much more on um, on Alex's side on, on the bond market. I think, you know, initially in January, I thought the Fed needed to cut 50 base points. 
I think they've waited long enough now that they probably now need to cut like 150. And, you know, if they pass in July or, or, or just get cold fits because of the, the false of receiving false signals, whether, you know, from, from the equity markets, uh, we'll just see like the front end of the curve, like, you know, one's fives or two's fives invert, and that will give them the signal they need to basically get on with, with cutting eventually. So I'm I'm still very much on the the, the U.S. fixed income market, even if really uh, I'm starting to get cold feet about buying European fixed income at, at those kind of levels. Well, Juliet, we're going to have you in the hot seat for our next episode next month. So why don't you give our listeners a preview of the trade you'll be pitching to the panel next month? So what I would like to talk about for change, and that's probably going to be in, in September, by the way, because as you know, Europeans are asleep in, in August. I would like to talk about a trade that I actually got wrong. And um, so I started the year in 2019, very positive on US bonds and also negative on the dollar. And as Alex said, you know, negative dollar was strictly an inferior trade to long fixed income. And, you know, I paid for it by, you know, getting it wrong and actually realized very quickly that I was wrong. And sometimes getting things wrong is actually the best way to eventually getting it right and, and making making a year. So I think that would be an interesting subject to talk about because I wasn't the only one who started the year negative negative on the dollar. And in fact, I think probably like every single bank strategist I knew was negative on the on the dollar, which which should probably have given me a bit of a hint. And it will also be interesting to see how we go from from here. Well, Juliet, I applaud you for choosing a trade that you got wrong. It certainly shows courage and openness on your part. So we'll look forward to that in our third episode of Inside the Investment Committee. Before we close, though, I want to ask each of our panelists to quickly tell our listeners how they can follow your work and learn more about what you do. Alex, since you were in the hot seat today, we'll let you go first. Please tell us about your work at Hante Investments. Now, you run a hedge fund, which is only open, obviously, to accredited investors. So please let our accredited investors know how they should go about contacting your staff to get more information about your fund. Yes, thank you, Eric. So please visit our website, hanteind.com. Uh, H-O-N-C-E-I-N-D.com. There are some things actually that are available for public. There are some publicly available blog posts and excerpts, which you don't have to go through password system through, but accredited investors can require, uh, who want to contact us can request to register and go to questionnaire and then we'll have access to more information on our website. Thank you very much. Juliet DeClerc, JDI Research, mostly an institutional advisor, but you're also working with some high net worth individuals and families as well. Yes, you can um, you can reach me through email at um, juliet.declerc at jdiresearch.com or you can follow me on Twitter at JulietJDI. And, uh, you know, whether you're institutional or whether you're an individual, I'll always answer your email with, with the right um, answer. Fantastic. And Julian Brigden, MI2 Partners. James Bond uh, works with you, I'm sure. 
Yeah, absolutely, Eric. Um, you know, he, it's where he learned to get his six pack from. You can follow us on uh, at mi2partners.com or if you're a retail client at macroinsiders.com, which we do with uh, Raoul Powell and, and Real Vision. Um, and if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at JulianMI2. All righty. Well, we look forward to seeing all three of you for our next episode. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. We'll see you next time, everybody. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Please register your free account at macrovoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the Internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices.